Again, God, we thank you for your love for your church. We thank you for your abiding care over your church. We thank you for the nourishment that your church is given by your written word. And as we go to that word this evening, I pray that you would illumine our minds and our hearts such that there is a sanctifying influence that takes place. The end result is that we not only know you more, but we trust you more. We have a greater passion and zeal to serve you more faithfully, to love your church more diligently, to be more obedient to the laws that you've given for us to live by, that we might be more conformed to the image of your Son. So, Father, we ask for that transforming change in our lives, and may you be glorified because of it tonight, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as Jacob mentioned, we are in Psalm 12 tonight. Again, a fairly brief psalm, so we'll be able to cover that easily tonight. Psalm 12. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak falsehood to one another with flattering lips and with a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that speaks great things, who have said with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? Because of the devastation of the afflicted, because of the groaning of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will preserve him from this generation forever. The wicked strut about on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. Um, I well remember, and I know that many of you older generation people will remember this as well. Um, <clears throat> I was just making sure I didn't need that, and I don't. Back in the early 80s, late 70s, there was a movement that emerged being pushed by uh, largely conservatives, but conservative Christians like Jerry Falwell. And this was called the Moral Majority. Many of you remember that, the Moral Majority. Um, and I think that their movement was to reintroduce the morals into this nation that had been fading away over time, the morals that perhaps this nation was founded on. And I suspect I could say safely that their, uh, their desire and their purpose was to see this nation re-energized with a sense of decency. Unfortunately, and this is my opinion about moral majority, they attempted to do it without the gospel. Um, which became just a movement of moralism. Nonetheless, those of us that were alive during that time did see something of a resurgence, and their objective was in this movement to awaken kind of grassroots America and get them to speak up again and go to the polls and vote and become active again. And I think for a few years, there was kind of a resurgence of conservatism and even biblical values. And I think James Dobson maybe had a little bit to do with that because you remember back in those 80s, he was the family guru and he was speaking out on abortion and other issues like that and there was a nation actually listening to him. So those kind of influences, I do believe, at least temporarily 
impacted our nation for those mid-80s years. Jump forward to where we are today. This is a very different nation, isn't it? This is a very different climate, a very different culture. As a Christian community, where we are committed to the authority and the purity of God's word, we are now finding ourselves very much the minority. And not only the minority, but we are not an appreciated minority at all. In fact, I think it would be very safe to say we are the unpopular minority. Biblical values today are seen as repulsive and they are despicable. Those who hold such values are considered unloving or religious extremists who are out of touch with culture. And while other nations in our present time period, other nations experience a physical persecution and certainly down through the history of the church, Past believers have witnessed extreme physical persecution. What we are seeing presently, at least in our American culture, is very much a verbal attack against Christianity. And we believe, I believe like many of you do, it's going to worsen and it may even become a physical persecution. But what we are witnessing today in this country is very much an attack of words against the Christian faith against Christian values, and even against the, the past history of this nation that at least had some roots in Christianity and Christian teaching. This was the case in Israel as David writes this 12th hymn. And for this reason, I believe that the writing of 12 is very close to the writing of Psalm 11 because of what was said in the third verse of Psalm 11. There was something of the foundations of Israel that were being shaken, Psalm 11, and now we're seeing what that looks like in Psalm 12. So it's my view that Psalm 11, Psalm 12, close to the same writing age. And I think as we look at the description of the verbal attacks and the treachery of men's words and how they had taken its toll on the nation, David is here crying out to the Lord for help. That's how this hymn opens. And I think we can identify with much of what this hymn is describing as we look at our present culture. So throughout this hymn, I'm going to be making that close parallel between Israel then and America or the church in America today because we're feeling much of the same oppression, the verbal attacks against God, his word, the church, the gospel, the Christian faith. Now, if you came in, you'd notice that there's a note sheet. You may want to use those tonight because I'm going to bring up a couple of points that are going to be helpful, I think, for the study and the absorption of this particular hymn of praise to God. And I want to start out with the first four verses because we see the deceptive words of human depravity here. And David is going to go at some length and describe the, the deception and the, the falsehood, the, the deceit, in men's words that is flowing out of depraved hearts. But there's a couple of points, and I put this on your note sheet, that are going to be helpful for our study. The very first is observing, even in the heading itself, before verse 1 opens up, this is clearly a hymn of David. This was in the Hebrew context, remember, or the Hebrew manuscripts. This is something David himself personally wrote as a hymn of praise to God. But if you do a quick scan over these 
eight verses, there are no personal pronouns. And I would have missed that clue altogether had it not been for a couple of exegetical commentaries that made a point to observe this. It's not like David to say, I or me. So there are no personal pronouns here. Therefore, it's letting us know that David is speaking on behalf of the faithful. And this is going to be important in just a couple of minutes. We're going to bring this up again. David is writing this hymn of praise on behalf of the faithful in Judah at this time. And because of the, the loss or the lack of uh, personal pronouns, this is considered a community lament. A community lament. But the second observation has to do with a little bit of a word study. And it's that word help. David appealing to God. And I bring this to our attention because if you're anything like me, and I'm giving a personal testimony here, how many times have we gone to prayer and we cried to God for help? Help me, Lord, in this. And this is important because as we look at this Hebrew word and in the Hebrew language, this word may have be a little bit different meaning than we may think. At least it did for my understanding. This is a word that means deliver preserve, avenge, or rescue. Now, make note of this. As one author explains, the word help does not call for merely some aid, but for the full and effectual deliverance. I would write that down, full and effectual deliverance. Because we're going to make a direct parallel between the circumstances in Israel at this time and our own national culture here in America, this is going to be an important distinction. As we apply this psalm to ourselves and our circumstances, it's teaching us about the challenges that we are facing in this generation. And we do well to cry out to God for help in exactly the same way that David is doing. Pleading for God, not simply to give us some supplemental assistance here, but rather to provide full and effectual rescue. We can't do anything. We need your full help, God. This prayer of David teaches us, I think, something of value for our own prayer life. When we cry to God for his help, we often picture God coming alongside and assisting us with our abilities. I'm not doing very well, but I'm doing something, so come Help me with this. And when there are persistent sins, we just attended um, a biblical counseling conference and it's dealing a lot with persistent, deep-seated sins. When we're dealing with these kinds of things or the oppression of a world against us, we don't need assistance. We need full, effectual help. We need to cry out to God. For all that he would give us because we have absolutely nothing to contribute. We are powerless without him. This is a rather significant observation for our prayer life. While we acknowledge the synergistic effort that we are to give towards our own sanctification. Remember back when we studied Philippians chapter 2. That idea of synergistic sanctification has us working out our salvation with fear and trembling because why? It is God who is at work in us, right? 
So even the work or the effort that we're doing towards our own sanctification is something that God is accomplishing through us. We are utterly powerless to even accomplish part of our own sanctification. It is God that is at work through us. David is teaching us a valuable lesson here at the beginning in regard to how we approach God in prayer. We're not looking for assistance. We ought not to be looking for assistance. We need his full, effectual help. We need to be rescued. We need to be delivered. Just as an example of this, I can say every time I get up to preach, I cry out to the Lord for just that because I know that in and of myself, I'm incapable to get up in front of people and do this kind of stuff. So every Sunday morning, I go through the same ritual asking for the full anointing of God on me. Yet, when I'm doing other things in my Christian walk, and I think I'm a little bit capable, I literally am praying in my mind, Lord, I need a little come alongside and pick me up. I need a supplemental help here. So this kind of language really is transforming for me. It changes that kind of self-confidence into humility. We need everything God would be willing to give us because without it, we're going to accomplish nothing. And this is the position David is in. He's not looking for an assistant. He's looking for the God to enable. And that's why I like that word, enable. We pray for the enablement of God. This is David's prayer. He's a man that was living before the Lord in a godly way as one of the few faithful remaining in Judah at that time. Yet he cries for help to come and fully deliver him and the few other faithful believers that remained in Israel in the land at that time. And this should be a model for us in our prayer life. We're in constant need of divine help as we cry out to the Lord. The posture of our heart should be that we have no strength We have no discipline. We have no determination. We have no willpower to affect any substantial change. To ward off the attacks of the enemy, whether the enemy is Satan himself or the world around us or our own lusts. We do not want the mere assistance of the Lord. We want his full and effectual deliverance. This is David's plea in this hymn of praise. And for good reason, as he goes on to describe what is taking place in this land. And again, I point out the distinction here between physical persecution or torment and verbal. Because as, as you probably know, words can be just as, if not more, damaging and hurtful. This is what David is experiencing. He's just not talking about a couple of his buddies making fun of him. This was a full-on national revolt that was tormenting the people of God, that faithful remnant, with their words. Verse 1, David is, and this is the first point you want to make here in that heading. The first problem that David is seeing is that he's alone. Notice the language of verse 1. Help, Lord. For the godly man ceases to be. The faithful disappear. Where have the godly people gone? They've disappeared. They've abandoned the ways of God, the laws of God. 
The godly are no longer present in the land and the faithful have disappeared from among his countrymen. And this is where it is important to know that David writes this hymn using the plural language, no personal pronouns, but in the Hebrew language, and you can't see this in the English manuscripts. It's why I would never have seen it had it not been for the exegetical commentaries that are pointing out that in the Hebrew language, David is using the plural. In other words, he's praying on behalf of a company of people. And yet in verse 1, he's saying we're alone. David is not saying I am the only one. He's saying we are alone. There are very few faithful in the land at this time. So this is the first thing that David is complaining to the Lord about. The godly are no longer present. There's only a few faithful that remain with David. And so he's using kind of hyperbole here in verse 1. He's emphasizing that there's no longer a moral majority in the land, but the believers are few and they are outnumbered by the wicked. And the wicked were making verbal assaults against the remnant of God, against the laws of God, against the foundations of righteousness that had made Israel a nation great in the eyes of the Lord. We saw that from Psalm 11 and verse 3. Because David had a heart after God. You can imagine how he's grieving for his nation. Don't we do the same thing for America? We'd love to see this nation turn again to God. And this is where David's heart is. He, he has a passion for God, and he loves the nation of Israel. So his heart is breaking, it's grieving. And the first condition of distress that he names here in verse 1 was the depletion of faithful men and women. In Israel, And then he moves on from there to observe the immoral majority, how destructive were their words and how they were disobeying God with their tongues. Verse 2, falsehood, distorting the truth of God. Insincerity of speech permeated the land. A condition of, of double-heartedness. Again, in the, in the Hebrew, it's a heart upon a heart is how it would literally read. In other words, there was duplicity deep within these people. Duplicity. We might say today we're speaking with forked tongue. Remember the old westerns? The Indians would say of the white man, he speaks with forked tongue because he says one thing, but he means something else. That's a heart upon a heart. It's duplicity. David was troubled by the deception of speech among his own people. Even flattery was to the extent that evil was being committed. We might witness flattery in kind of a mild way where evil is not necessarily being promoted perhaps being overtly comp overly complimentary maybe but we've all witnessed the kind of flattery that was troubling israel at this time i think it's the empty kind of flattery that has evil motives behind it you and i have seen that solomon warns of this kind of deceptive speech in Proverbs 29 and verse 5, he writes, A man who flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his steps. Solomon must have seen this in his father's land, in David's land. The people of the land had become known for their smooth and appealing words, words that made others feel good about themselves, but words that were leading them away from the truth of God. You know, we see this in our land today. Just take the subject of abortion. The world's view of abortion is not murder, is it? It's an issue of what? Human rights. How can you not be in favor of human rights? 
That's that kind of flattery, the smooth talk. It's deceptive. Because you and I know that what they're doing is killing people. They're killing babies. It's murder. That's the kind of flattery speech that David was seeing in his land. Solomon saw that as well. One of the things that we see in our day is the kind of flattery that tells us that man is basically good. This is one of the false teachings of the world that has now entered the doors of the church such that those claiming to be Christian believe that man is good within. Um, Sandy had shared a, a ch- uh, kind of a, a poll from Ligonier. And if you want to see that, you might ask her about that. This is a fascinating poll that Ligonier Ministries did. And it took me off guard a little bit. Not so much what, the wor- what they poll the world and their belief system, but the evangelical church was polled. And it's amazing what those that call themselves evangelical actually believe about Jesus Christ or human depravity or even abortion. The percentages are not in favor of a good, sound, biblical church. And David continues with the condemnation here. Verses 3 to 4. He observes those who speak great and lofty things, but adding that no one is able to challenge their words or contradict their views. So there's an arrogance here in the words that they use. There's smooth, flattery, speech, deception. There's forked-tonguedness, the duplicity of heart. But they're arrogant. They're boasting. Who's going to prevail over us? Our declarations, who's going to stand above what we say? We're the master of our own speech. We have the right to say as we please, and who is there to condemn? Who's going to refute our words? If we lie, who will be Lord over us? Man is the master now. You see that? This is in Israel. God's people. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that speaks great things. Verse 4, who have said with our tongue, we will prevail Our lips are our own, who is Lord over us. I can say whatever I want. Who will be my judge? This is the kind of arrogance that was in the deception of Israel at this time. It was bold, it was brazen. The removal of the sovereignty of God's authority over their lives. David knew well the treachery behind these kinds of words and this kind of speech. It was a denial of any authority over self. Man would be the master. And he's accountable to no one. Does that not sound like America today? Like this period in Israel's history, this is a nation of ours that has grown arrogant in its own self-rule and autonomy in the hearts of its people. I don't think there's ever been a time, at least in my lifespan, or the nation's history, where we see this kind of brazen arrogance that has been so predominant the removal of God, the despising of his word and authority, the sentiment that man's laws stand above the laws of religion or decency. These are now the philosophies that rule our nation. So we can easily sense the the despair that David felt over his nation and the words of deception, the arrogance and the defiance that dominated his people. It, It has this overwhelming grip on his land and he's he's grieving for his people but this is where David's hymn turns an abrupt corner right there in verse 5 his despair his plea his cry for help 
looks to the purity of God's word over man's arrogant words. This is where in verse 5 and 6 I see the pure word of God coming to the surface. And I believe this is at the heart of this hymn of praise for David. Verse 5, the Lord... <coughs> oh, verse 5, oh, the other one, Psalm 12. Because of the devastation of the afflicted, because of the groaning of the needy. See, God there in the beginning of verse 5, he sees what's going on. He hasn't missed this. The devastation of those that are afflicted, the groaning of the needy, he's observing this. And then he speaks. Now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he longs, speaking to the remnant. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. Verse 5 begins by assuring us that God hears his people. David has cried out for help, and he's, he's doing so on behalf of the remnant of faithful in the land. And God is listening. He's observing their groaning and their affliction. And at the appropriate time, according to his wisdom, his sovereignty, his providence, he says, I will now arise. Nobody has demanded this of him. God has declared, this is the moment when I will rise up. So God is never blind to the devastation and affliction that the wicked have brought against his people. And this verse, along with verse 7, teaches us that there are a few in the land that have remained faithful to the Lord along with David. They're being afflicted by the wickedness of man's words. And God sees that affliction caused against his faithful by those who are deceptive, those who are arrogant and treacherous in their words. And God arises to bring help to those pleading him. This hymn shows us that God works through the prayers of his people. David's crying out to the Lord. And here it's showing us that in the appropriate time, God rises up. Observe that affliction and devastation, though. Affliction and devastation were allowed by the Lord. But when it serves his pleasure to act, he does. The wording of verse 5 shows this. Now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he longs. The people of God long to be safe. We talked about the refuge that we find in God last time. This is a continuing of kind of that same theme of safety, running to God and finding safe shelter. I observe here how this hymn fits so well with Psalm 11. It shows that God provides a safe place for his people. God honors the desires of his people to be safe in him. But we also notice that where there is a safe place, we see the safety that God provides us in the purity of his word against the deception of man's word. So there's a specific context to this refuge. What is that context? It is the word of God. Verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. Is that significant? Yes, it is. Because in the Hebrew culture, seven was perfection, remember. So what David is picturing, he's, he's painting this kind of uh, allegory for us. That the word of God is like silver that has been refined in a furnace seven times. It cannot be any more perfect. It cannot be any more pure in its righteousness, its promises, its power, its trustworthiness. 
It's contrasting that with the deception of man's words, the trickery, the false flattery, the duplicity, but not with the word of God, purified seven times. It is perfect. The sixth verse seems to be the key to the whole psalm to me. It's tucked in between God arising to bring help to his afflicted people in verse 5 and the promise that God will preserve his people forever in verse 7, right there in the middle. The pure silver of God's word refined seven times. What do you think it's trying to communicate to the church? The safety we find in the word of God. What a vivid contrast here in this 12th psalm. The extreme treachery of man's sinful words over and against the purity or the perfection of God's word. As God arises, he's making his word known then. He's revealing himself to his people through his word. He's communicating the surety of his promises, the power of his nature and the righteousness of his instructions. That's all coming to the surface now. And he's drawing his people back to the safe shelter of his word in contrast of the culture all around them that is reveling in deceptions and man's philosophies and boasting. I think today there is such a satanic movement to twist and to pervert the purity of God's word. Man boasts of his own academic achievements and his own philosophical findings and his own musings and his own corrupted sciences all to show that God's word is not to be trusted. Man has put his own word above the word of God. You and I see that today. It's what David was seeing. And we're seeing people today that are in essence saying the same thing. Who will be Lord over us? Who's going to top the wisdom of our words? Who's going to contradict us? We're going to prevail. We're going to show that there is no creator God. And the church, unfortunately, seems to be intimidated by this. And it begins to believe the lie. And they view God's word then sometimes as only partially refined and pure. It's very popular today for so-called evangelicals, for instance, to view the first 15 chapters of Genesis as nothing more than an allegory. It's poetry. We ought not believe it as truth. So it's not viewed as the word of God refined seven times. But it's just kind of a myth that God may have been there creating this world and all that is in it. And they don't stop at the book of Genesis. And why should they? If the the first 15 chapters of the book of God aren't to be trusted, why trust the rest of it? In fact, once man decides he has the authority to override the word of God in all of its purity, he's really put himself in the place of God. And down through the history of the church, Satan and this world have maintained a constant attack against the purity and the preserving power of God's word. And yet the word of God remains, doesn't it? It is still here. I don't think it's merely dramatics by David that we read in verse 5 that God speaks in response to the arrogant words of man. Where in verse 4, man is boasting that no one shall be lord over his words. God speaks and he says, now I will rise. And he affirms his word as pure and promises to keep his people safe. And this brings us to verse 7 and 8. The confident words of the faithful. Confident words of the believer. 
David follows this with these words. You, O Lord, will keep them safe. You see, God has just spoken. I will arise. My word is pure. David responds. And he responds on behalf of that faithful remnant. You, O Lord, will keep them. There's one of those plurals. You will preserve him from this generation forever. The wicked strut about on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. This is the believer's response to God rising up and affirming the authority and purity of his own word. The faithful reply to this, You, O Lord, you're going to preserve. You're going to keep this genera- uh, safe from this generation forever. The generation that God preserves the faithful from is the present culture that was causing them affliction. But we note that God's preservation is what? Forever, right? Whatever God has done to preserve his people is going to last into eternity. And this, I think, gives us a good idea of what kind of preservation we're talking about. Let's face it, down through the history of the church, there have been saints that have been burned at the stake and crucified and torn apart by lions. Physically, they may not have been preserved. But when God says, I will preserve them forever, it gives us a pretty good uh, picture here of what kind of preserving and safety and refuge the Word of God provides for His people. When I read that, it is John chapter 10 that I thought of. The words of the Good Shepherd who said, My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me and I give eternal life to them. And they will never, what? Perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me, greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. How does that come about? Through the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the word of God that does that. And the moment we discern what David is talking about when it comes to the safe provision of God, I think we better understand, we are better equipped to understand the authority and lasting refuge that God's word is to his people. Only the gospel of God can provide that kind of eternal protection, that kind of eternal assurance. And to the people of gospel faith, only the word of God can transform us into the new creation that we are in Christ. We're talking about our sanctification. Only the Word of God can grow us in the likeness of Christ. Only the Word of God can provide the daily security and the peace of His promises in our heart. Notice here that verse 8. Interesting way to end this hymn, isn't it? Verse 8. The presence of man's vileness is still upon the people of God. God didn't take it away. They're still there. God promises to preserve his people, rising up with the purity and the power of his word. I will preserve them. My word will do that. But he didn't take away the evil, did he? The wicked are still there. And all their tormenting words, still strutting about, arrogant, saying vile things. They're all around, it says. They're all around on every side of the faithful. So God has not removed them. He has not removed these evil ones. Judgment for the wicked will come. And it may come for some wicked in their lifetime, but it will come for all the wicked in the eternal life to come. Christians down through the history of the church have paid the price of walking with Christ in a world that arrogantly opposes him. But those who are truly the faithful of God 
are preserved by him through the purity of his word. I actually had two conclusions made up for tonight, but I'm not going to use the first one. I, you know what we did last week, and I was going to get some input again, um, because throughout this particular study, I've been mentioning some of the ways in which the word of God is a safe refuge to us. And it begins with the gospel. It really begins there with the cross of Jesus Christ. And the moment that we repent of our sins and we put our faith in what Christ has done on that cross for us, we enter into this protection. So we can see the purity of God's gospel word and how it makes us safe in Christ. But even beyond that, our sanctification. As we live obediently, we're kept in the righteousness of his truth, grown into the likeness of Christ himself. We're we're given that peace in our hearts as we anchor our trust in his promises. Why? Because his word has been refined seven times. It is absolutely perfect without flaw in its righteousness, in its trustworthiness. In other words, God can be trusted. He is faithful, and he will never be otherwise. So we're going to move to the second option. And you can follow this in your note sheet. Believers trust, number one, in the preserving power of God's word. Believers trust in the preserving power of God's word. I believe that's the theme of this hymn. It's why we cry out to God for help. And then we can go to his word. And what can we find there? It's a safe place, as boastful as man can be. We can be encouraged that they will never lead to eternal preservation. The wickedness of man's deceptive words can never provide eternal preservation, but the word of God can. The only thing eternal in store for the wicked is unending judgment. Only the believer has the promise of the preserving power of God's word. That's again the purity of of the gospel. Number two, preserving the believer forever means preserving the believer presently. If we're going to be held forever, it means in the here and now where we're facing the things that David was facing. We'll be preserved now. Our salvation cannot be robbed. The Holy Spirit isn't going to be taken away because he's intimidated by the floggings of men's words. So if he's going to keep us forever, it means he's keeping us now, right? And number three, though believers often stand alone, they never stand alone. The world around us is always going to abandon truth bearers, but God never will. So in a sense of a world, we're always going to be standing alone, like David and his nation. But in reality, we're never standing alone. If God is for us, who can be against us? Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, the life that I now live, Paul wrote, in the flesh, we live daily by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. We can never lose that. One thing that will often be praised in the Psalms, and we'll see this again and again, is the trustworthiness of, and the safety found in the word of God. We see it here in Psalm 12. You'll see it again in Psalm 19. Repeatedly in Psalm 119. This is one thing we're going to find again and again in the Psalms. The trustworthiness and the safety found in the word of God. 
it is pure, refined seven times. Father, thank you for the encouragement of even these little hymns of praise. It is easy for us to see, given our climate, our culture today, why Psalm 12 is in your word. David experienced what we're experiencing today. And I pray that as a church, we will find safety, we'll find confidence, and we'll trust in your word. And I thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen.